Hello, welcome back. My name is Dr. Christopher Gennari, and this is Great Big History, Great Big History Podcast. In this episode, we're going to talk about uh, the Roman Republic, starting with the Roman army, the Legion. The Roman army is the Legion, and it's the best fighting unit in the ancient world. It will conquer everything from the deserts of Mesopotamia to the coasts of Portugal, from the hills of northern Yorkshire and England, all the way down to the Sahara. And we'll be able to fight in all of those different terrains and win. The Legion is a unit of 5,000 people, give or take. And it was considered to be an independent army. It was its own thing, like a, a, a division is today. And they fought with the sword and the shield. And what that meant was instead of the spear, which we talked about with the Greeks, the Romans are going to have to spread out because you can't use a sword and be close. You'll hit the person next to you. So they have to spread out. So there's a lot more air in the legion. Also, you had to be able to be independent as a soldier. So your shield, unlike the Greek phalanx, where you're protecting the man next to you, in the legion, you are, you, your shield protects you. You are an independent fighting soldier. This means that you need training and you need discipline. And the, the Romans from time to time are going to be ruthless in both their training and their discipline. This is not a professional army. These are still farmers who are going to be conscripted into the army. So they're like the reserves today. A typical Roman is kind of like the reserves today. They knew how to fight, but they weren't the professional units. The Roman Empire will create a professional army. But the Roman Republic still relied on conscripted or drafted soldiers, farmers. So... These guys need training because if I just gave you a sword, you wouldn't know what to do with it. How to protect yourself with the shield. How to work together. Especially with all of that air. The Romans can run away. And they will. When they first fight the Gauls, they'll get hit with the Gaulic charge and they'll run away. They see elephants, they'll run away. Rome will lose battles. But because of Nashio, they don't lose wars. The second thing is that this provides flexibility. There's a lot of air. Unlike the phalanx, which can only move forward, the legion can move from side to side, forward, backward. It could turn around. In fact, the individual soldier can fight in relays. They can take a step to the side and go to the back of the line. Units can even take a break in the middle of battle, eat a little bit, get a little bit of bread, get a little bit of wine, which may sound silly to you, but you're not getting drunk. First, the wine is cut with water, but the second thing is it's also straight sugar, so you're going to burn it right off. So in the middle of a battle where all the Gauls are trying to be at the front of the line to kill as many people as they can in order to prove their own masculinity as a warrior, 
the Romans are fighting like a machine where some parts are taken out of the battle, rested, reorganized, and sent back in. That gives them a profound advantage. The third part is that all legionnaires are supposed to be interchangeable. Like Marines today, where the saying is, all Marines are riflemen, all Romans are a legionnaire. All Roman citizens of middle class or above status, anyway. So there's the auxiliaries, the men who will throw javelins, uh, shoot bows, who are either poor Romans who can't afford the legionnaire equipment or who are allies who have been brought into the Roman army in order to provide uh, assistance. But a Roman legionnaire, a Roman soldier, is interchangeable with every other Roman soldier, able to do the job of any other Roman soldier, and any Roman unit is supposed to be interchangeable with every other Roman unit. So that a Roman general doesn't have to worry about which groups he has. He knows he's got Romans. He knows what kind of weapons they got. He knows how they can fight. He can depend on them. So who makes up this army? Both the patricians and the infantry. Uh, both the patricians and the plebeians, excuse me. The patricians are the officers. And if you've been in the military or you know someone who's been in the military, you know being an officer, your life is better. You are treated better. Your pay is better. Your accommodations are better. Your future prospects are better. Why? Well, in the Roman army, they were better. The officers were the richest people in society. While the plebeians, the regular middle-class farmer, was the infantryman was a regular soldier, up through the sergeant, up through the centurion, up through the non-commissioned officer. The idea was everyone served in this army. Everybody served. Rich and poor alike. In fact, you had to serve if you were a rich person, if you ever wanted to be in the Senate. You needed to have 10 years of service in the military in order to apply to be in the Senate. The idea of the Roman legion is everyone served. The second part is it reinforced how society worked. Roman society was hierarchical. The rich were better than the poor. The rich had more rights and more power than the poor. But they also had a relationship. The rich depended on the poor, especially for elections, for getting laws passed, for getting uh, elected into more important positions. And so what you have is a, what's called a client-patron relationship where the rich, the patricians, had plebeians that they would help. If you, ever wa if you ever want to see how this works, watch the first 10 minutes of, of The Godfather where the under, I think it's The Undertaker, it's The Undertaker or Baker, but I think it's The Undertaker comes and asks The Godfather for help. And the godfather says, well, what have you ever done for me? You've never been good to me. You've never invited me over to your home. My wife is godmother to your child, and yet you ignore us. What have you done for me? Now, the guy says, well, I can pay you money for your help. And the godfather says, I have plenty of money. I don't need that. What I want is, your re what I want is respect, and you're not respecting me. And that's very Roman. 
the patricians will help their plebeians in exchange for that respect of authority, of what's called authoritas, octoritas, where we get authority from, which isn't just, I get to tell you what to do. It's this whole, um, it's where we get the word patrician. It's paternal. It is, I will take care of you and help you out. You are my plebeians. In exchange, you will help me out when I need you. So when a patrician goes off to war, his plebeians go with him. When the patrician has a bill before the Senate, his plebeians will get a group together to call for it to be passed. The plebeians are the patricians, like, rabble-rousing homeboys. And so the army reflects that relationship. So patricians tell plebeians what to do in society. They go into the military, and patricians tell plebeians what to do in the military. And then they leave the military, and patricians tell plebeians what to do in society again. So society and the army reflected each other. That's very different from today. I've had plenty of military students who say the army acts completely different than society. I go into the army, we act one way, we're told what to do one way, we, we have rules one way, and I get out into the world and it's completely different. People are very different from the military, that they're two different societies. That's not true in the Roman world. The army reflected the relationships of society, and society reflected the relationships of the army. In exchange, the plebeians get protection. Like, that's rule number one if you're an officer. Rule number one is you protect your men. You make sure they have food. You make sure they have good equipment. You make sure, you try to make sure they get one, glory, but also they, two, come home. You don't make them do anything you wouldn't do. You protect your men. Rule one of being an officer. That doesn't mean be a coward. Again, job one is to get glory for your men so that when they get out of the army, they have some money, they can brag, they have pride, they have the most important of all Roman values, dignitas, where we get dignity from. The ability to say, I was there, you can hold your head up. I fought Hannibal at Zama. I fought the elephants in Africa at Utica. I served Rome. That pride of nationalism, that pride of self, that pride of masculinity, you're able to go to your children and say, I did this. You're able to go to your wife and say, I did this. Dignitas. Glory. Dignity. But none of that matters if you're dead. So suicide missions are not something you would do if you can avoid them. Officers don't Go, hey, you know what? Let's all die. Sometimes you're in the rear guard and it's going to happen. You accept that. But at the same time, you don't seek it out. So the everyone serves in the Roman army. All parts of society and the society and the army are mirrors of each other. They reflect each other. Three or four is victory. Equals a shared glory. Everyone gets to say that. 
everyone gets the dignitas, everyone gets the glory, everyone. The, a triumph is a parade through Rome. You kill 5,000 of the enemy, as a general, you get a triumph. And the entire, it's a, it's a ticker tape parade. Like when you win the Super Bowl or you win uh, the World Series, the entire city comes out and sings your praises, throws flowers. And a lot is made out of the general who gets the place of honor. He gets put in a chariot. He becomes Jupiter. He gets his face painted. Um, if you ever want to see a version of this, watch one of the later episodes in season one of the HBO show Rome. And you can see what a triumph looks like. But you know what? The regular men get to walk in that too. The regular men get to walk down the Via Appia and get showered with applause. The regular soldiers get that glory too. So victory equals a shared glory, a dignity, a dignitas, a pride. Defeat, if you were, <laughs> if you're Hannibal or someone else who is Pyrrhus, who is silly enough to defeat a Roman legion, you end up getting more Roman legions thrown at you. That's Hannibal at Cannae in 216 BC. He kills 70,000 Romans in one day. He sucks them into a trap. He uses their, their, their pride and their val valor against them. He was in Italy. He had invaded Italy. The Romans wanted to attack him. And so he sucked them into a trap, surrounded them, and butchered them. There's an estimate from one historian that 800 men a minute were being killed. They were so close into a circle, you couldn't breathe, much less use your arms. If you want a good example of this, um, watch the Battle of the Bastards in Game of Thrones, Season 5. Or season six, season six, um, episode nine, season six, because that's exactly what happened. That's the battle of Can not the entire battle is the battle of Cannae, but the part where they are in enclosed in, in a giant circle. That is the battle of Cannae. So close, the men pressed into each other. You can't swing your arms. You can't hold up your shield. You can't even breathe. You're being crushed. Seventy thousand Romans. The worst defeat the Romans ever suffered. It is a defeat that if anyone else suffered, it's the end of their civilization. It's the kind of defeat that destroys the new kingdom. It's the kind of defeat that destroys Israel against the Assyrians. It's, a, it's the kind of defeat that destroys Nineveh and destroys the Assyrians. It is the kind of defeat. You lose 70,000 people in one day, your civilization stops fighting. It's done. It's over. Hannibal declared victory. He basically walked up to Rome and threw down his mic and said, what, what more do you want me to do? And Rome said, ah, we'll get you another legion or so. We'll see what you can do. Rome raised over a million men over the 20 years to fight Hannibal. A million people. Most cities are five to 10,000. Even Greek empires could raise maybe 100,000 soldiers plus mercenaries. The Romans with Nascio, the idea that you can make new Romans just by making them fight for you and you give them rights, allowed Rome to tap into Italy.
the Italians did not, the old Latins, the old Etruscans, did not fight for Hannibal. They fought for Rome, the conqueror, which tells you the Romans weren't that bad, at least in the beginning, especially to the Italians. So the Romans may lose battles, but they win wars. They'll always get more men. And in war, you need two things. You need soldiers and you need money. If you've got those two things, you can always keep fighting. And so even though Hannibal defeated, killed 70,000 people in one day, it's such a defeat, crying was made illegal in Rome. You couldn't cry in public. The idea being if one person started crying in public, everybody would cry in public. Everyone, the entire morale would be destroyed because everyone had lost somebody. 80 senators are killed in this battle. There's stories of Hannibal wearing their rings. The Senate, because when you were in the Senate, you got a special ring. You got a special signet. And the idea was he cut them, he of course cut them off the bodies because this is special, wore them as a necklace and they jingled jangled as he, as he rode his war elephant. Hannibal should have won. In fact, there's a famous saying that uh, one of his generals comes up to Hannibal, ha Rome won't surrender, and he says, Hannibal, you know how to win victories but not know how to use them. Because the Italians did not rise, like the Babylonians and the people in the Middle East against the Assyrians. The that's what Hannibal expected to happen. It didn't happen. They didn't rise up. They fought, and not only did they not rise up, they fought for Rome. They joined the Roman army and became Roman citizens. So what does this mean for the Roman Empire or for Rome, the Roman Republic? Well, you have war all the time, and eventually that will burn out. You can't keep putting men into the army, taking them away from their farms, uh, throwing them at war against war against war forever without burning out your society or your army. We very much saw this in our, the later stages of the Iraq War. By 2006, 2007, the, the American army in Iraq was burned out. Men were doing five, six, seven tours. More of them were committing suicide than being killed by the, by the enemy. They were more dangerous to themselves. You had stop gaps. And men who were thinking they were going to retire, being forced back in and then being sent overseas again. We saw this in the end of the Vietnam War. The Vietnam War, by 1972, 1973, the army was broken. In fact, it was so broken they got rid of the draft and started with a professional army, a mercenary army. That we're going to pay people. We're not going to rely on their civic virtue and draft them. We're going to pay people to be in the military professionally. That's going to be their job, and it's going to be way more expensive. But it's the only way to save the army. By 1975, our army was destroyed. It had ripped itself apart in Vietnam. If the Soviet Union invaded Germany in 1975, there was very little that could have stopped it other than nuclear weapons from conquering all the way to the Pyrenees, all the way to the Channel. There's nothing. In 1975, not the American army. It was completely burned out. 
You see this in drug use. You see this in suicides. You see this in fragging or destroying your own officers. You saw this in racism in the military, where units broke down along racial lines. The American army fell apart in the 70s. It came close. It burned out its gears in the 2000s by overuse. The same thing is going to happen to Rome. Because it's going to have war all the time. 300 years it's going to take to conquer Italy. They'll defeat the Gauls. And in defeating the Gauls, they'll learn bravery and toughness. Remember, the Gauls are tough but dumb. I mean, they'll learn stuff. A, very, a lot about trade and carts. Wheeled vehicles will come from the Gauls. So when I call the Gauls dumb, it's not... It's just meant for the Matrix. It's, they're not as dumb as... They're not stupid. But the idea was they were uncivilized. They weren't the Greeks. They weren't the Etruscans. And the Romans even look at them and go, they're, they're bearded barbarians. Barbarian is ones who wear beards. Um, to the Greeks, barbarian is barbar isomai, a barbar, one who speaks babbles. But where we get barbar from is beard, one who is bearded. Because the Romans were clean shaven because they fought hand to hand. You don't want anything that, that, that someone could grab onto. So in defeating the Gauls, they're going to learn bravery. They're going to learn toughness. There's no one tougher than the Gauls. So if you're going to defeat the Gauls, you got to be tough. To defeat the Greeks, you had to learn tactics and strategy. You can't go charging in and fighting the Greeks. They'll, they have their 10, 20-foot spears. They'll stab you and laugh at you. You can't frontally assault a phalanx. You have to lure it into a trap. This was Xerxes' problem at Thermopylae. This is uh, the Persian problem at Marathon, is that you needed to get around them. You need to surround them. The Romans, that's called tactics, or in a grander sense, in terms of the conquest of Greece, strategy. How do you defeat these enemies? And so you had to get smarter. So the Romans get tougher, and they get smarter through their wars. And what they do is absorb these peoples into a Roman Empire. And through Natio, they create new citizens who become Roman. Those Greeks in southern Italy, those Greeks in Sicily became Italian. They become Roman. The Gauls became Roman. The big war that's going to make Rome, though, is the Punic Wars, the conquest of Carthage, the western Mediterranean. Carthage was a Phoenician city. It was a Hellenized Phoenician city. So it was Phoenician, but it was very Greek in its culture. And it was very trade-orientated, whereas Rome is agricultural, based mostly on its local farmers. Carthage was based on its merchants, its trade network, mineral wealth. This is the biggest war Rome is going to fight in the Roman Republic, and it's going to break Rome for all intents and purposes. This is going to start the breakage of Rome. It's going to make Rome, but the aftermath of it is going to lead to the gears falling off the Roman Republic. They're going to fight in Spain, in North Africa, in Sicily. They're going to conquer them all. These are large territories, big farms, lots of mineral wealth, new peoples who aren't Italian, who don't live near Rome. This, for the first time, creates an empire, and Rome gets rich, far richer than it got conquering Italy. 
It got so rich, it couldn't stop owning these places. It will obliterate Carthage. It will exterminate small Spanish tribes. Showing that the Romans could be mean. When they destroy um, Carthage in 146 BC, 80,000 people in one day will be sold into slavery. The Romans by 146 are so efficient at the defeat, destruction, and enslavement of other peoples. If you fight for Rome, you can join Rome. If you fight against Rome, you have problems. And if you really, and if you come close to winning, you're done. You will be destroyed. And so they plow salt into the fields. Now it's, now it's not, it's unlikely that's true. It's an apocryphal story, but it's a story that they plowed salt in the fields. Why? To so that nothing at Carthage would ever grow again. That that's how mean they were. They could obliterate a people and then look at what they had left. I want to say it's Polybius, but I could be wrong that it's um, the Romans create a field. They turn a city into a field and then call it victory. That they, they just obliterate it. And then they say, you know what? Not only did we kill all the people, enslave who was left, tear down their entire city so that no one could live here again. You know what we should do? We should make it uninhabitable, uninhabitable forever for men or beast. That is a level of vengeance, of anger, of hatred that shows the Romans could be mean. Assyrian-like in their meanness. Now, they're not terrorists like the Assyrians are, but they could be if they wanted to be. The conquest of the Greek states, which come after, in fact, some of the um, Macedon had to, uh, Philip V of Macedon did the silly thing of, of joining, getting involved in the Second Punic War, um, just as Hannibal was, uh, was about to lose it. And so he gave Rome the pretext to invade Greece and loot the Greek world of all of its money. Um, what the conquest of the Greek state showed was that the Roman Empire, the Roman Republic, eclipsed the Greek world of city-states, small kingdoms. So we have a new world. We have a world of an empire, of a cosmopolitan empire, replacing the small Greek kingdoms. Which aren't, to be fair, all that small, but Athens, Sparta, Macedon, uh, the cities of Lydia are eclipsed by this. Even Egypt, Ptolemaic Egypt, where Cleopatra will be the last queen, is eclipsed. It's, it is go big or go home, and the Romans go bigger than anybody else. The second part of absorbing the Greek states is the absorption of Greek philosophy, of Greek knowledge. The Romans get smarter, and they get smarter simply by taking, by borrowing. The Greeks are smart people. They conquered the Persian Empire. They are strong people. There is a respect for that. And in fact, the Romans, being conservative people, respect anything that's old and successful. So they absorb the Greek philosophy. And that means Athens, not Sparta, not Thebes. Athens wins <clears throat> because Athenian culture becomes 
not only Greek culture, but becomes Roman culture, which makes it Western culture. They will pick up the Stoics, Greek, uh, a Greek philosophy we haven't taken, we haven't explained yet, because really it's not big in Greece. It's the Romans that liked it, because the Romans considered manliness to be control, power over things. And so men control emotions. And that's the Stoics. You want to know why your boyfriend won't say I love you in front of his homeboys? Blame the Stoics. You want to know why when you cut off your thumb, the appropriate response is not to cry, but to go, hmm, well, at least I have another one. Oh, go to the hospital. Yeah, I guess. We'll see if I get around to it. I've got, I got other things to do, honey. Why we say boys don't cry? That's the Stoics. You have control over yourself, your emotions. Because in the Roman world, men controlled the world around them. And the more powerful you were, the more you controlled. The patricians controlled not only themselves, their family, but plebeians who worked for them. But even a plebeian controlled his wife, his children. He had power over them. Even Roman women have power over their children. And the eldest child had power over the younger children. Everything revolved around power in these relationships, power relationships. And the Stoic philosophy of the Greeks works totally in that because now you turn it internally. It's not only external power control, it's now you turn it internally. So it worked. The Romans love Stoicism. The most famous is going to be the Roman emperor uh, Marcus Aurelius, who's going to write an entire handbook called The Meditations about how to live the good life. And a lot of that is this. Uh, it's not only how to live the good life, it's how to be a good emperor. It's, it's a handbook really for his son who never read it. And it's about poise. It's about control. It's about dignity. If you want an example in America, it's George Washington. George Washington's the old patrician. He is, he is stoicism writ large, as opposed to Hamilton or even Jefferson, who are all emotion. It is Washington who is the Stoic in, in American life. We get Aristotle, who be basically the Romans take on as science, what we would call sciences, how the world works, how to explain the function of the world, and the Romans are going to take Aristotle. But Plato is going to be the dreams of the Romans, the idea of the ideal, Roman aspirations. What can Rome be? What can the Roman world be? What can it become? And you'll see this in Christianity. Christianity will take this on. We'll take on this Platonic ideal. We'll get heaven. We'll get Jesus. We'll get Jehovah as perfect, that Jesus is a perfect man, that he doesn't even fart. And of course Jesus farts. There's a book I came across somewhere in, in college, which was called Jesus Laughed. And it was a book that, that tried to bring back the humor for Jesus, that, that Jesus is so, so idealized, so iconic, that you forget that Jesus hung out with his 12 best friends. 
And these guys must have enjoyed each other. They must have made each other laugh. That Jesus must have laughed. So it was Jesus laughed. It was about remind you of the humanity of Jesus. Because it gets wrapped up in the platonic ideal of Jesus. But that itself came from the Roman taking of Plato for Roman aspirations. You see the Roman Empire always striving to be better, to be something else. Or at least many of the philosophers from Cicero to Cato, even the conservatives like Cato, are talking about Rome can be better than it is. It was better. It should be better. It is Reagan's um, city on the hill. That's the platonic ideal. Even though Reagan's taking it from the Puritans, from the pilgrims, from a religious ideal. But that's platonic, the idea that we can be that. So Aristotle is practical. It's how the world works. But Plato is, is the aspirational. And all of this comes from the Greeks. And so the Romans will absorb all of this stuff and read it and write about it and train in it. So what are our results? The results are we get one empire, one economic political system. We get the Roman Empire. It's not run by an emperor yet, so it's a little e-empire. But it's what you think of when you think of Rome, stretching from the Atlantic to the, to the Euphrates, from Britain to the Sahara. All roads will lead to Rome. Rome is a cosmopolitan city at the center of the world, and the Romans made it so. It doesn't have to be. It shouldn't be a major city. The Romans made it into the capital of the world. It's the first city to hit a million people, five times the size of Babylon that so awed the Hebrews when they go there in 1000 BCE. By one, by one, one or 100, which is, the early, which is the Roman Empire under the emperor, the height of Rome is considered about 100 AD, but even by 1 AD, it's considered to be a city of a million people. We have the movement of peoples, the sharing of ideas and advancement. The Romans got smart. They were perfectly willing to absorb other people's ideas, but other people brought their ideas to Rome. They are willing to work for Rome. They are, the Romans are willing to use them for success. So all of these people, like I mentioned with the Gauls, the Gauls were excellent in carts, horses, carts, trade over the mountains. The Romans absorbed them in Latin words for cart and for trade and for wheeled vehicles. They're all Gallic words. They're not Latin words. So with the movement of peoples, we have the movement of goods. We get a world economy for the first time. You could get Sp in, in Rome, you could get Spanish olives. But you could also get uh, Sumerian uh, uh, oranges. Spices from the east. The Romans will connect to India and to China. Now it's the Chinese who will build the Silk Road during the Roman Empire, but the Romans are perfectly happy to take in these spices silks. Popes and Roman emperors will dress in Chinese silks. So we get a world economy. And for the first time, we really do get globalization. We, so Rome goes from being a, a 
kind of rural poor society based upon farmers, agricultural farmers, to being based on trade and wealth and the movement of goods and money. We get education, law, customs, food. Latin and Greek spread everywhere. If you lived in the West, you spoke Latin. If you lived in the East, you spoke Greek. If you were intelligent or, or educated, you spoke both. You could read both. Any smart Roman could read Greek and converse in Greek. It's the language of education. It's the language of Aristotle. It's the language of Plato. It's the language of Homer. It's the language of the dramatists, Aeschylus, Euripides, Sophocles. The language of war, of politics, was Latin. And so the small world that we've talked about up to this point, that even Babylon really only connects through Mesopotamia. But most people aren't, don't live in Babylon. Most people aren't even connected to Babylon. They lived in a small town and a small city. You are now replaced by a massively diverse world where everybody is connected, where the roads connect you to Rome. You could get on a road and go to Italy, cross over the mountains. The Romans will build passes and maintain them through the mountains that used to separate you. In Greece, they will level mountains and just build roads right through them. No Greek city thought of doing that. No Greek city could go to its 5,000 citizens. Let's level this mountain so we can connect to the people on the other side. It's the Romans who do that in order to stop rebellion but also to allow for trade, allow for movement of goods, allow for movement of their army. So you're connected to people you, you were never connected to before. You live in a massively connected world that simply didn't exist. The Romans create something that's very, very modern. In our next episode, we'll talk about the collapse of the Roman Republic because while all of that stuff was good that we talked about, there's bad stuff too. Thank you.